word of warning. Today we are chatting about Clive Barker's The Thief of Always. And things are certainly going to get a little bit rowdy between the two of us. Enjoy. Welcome to Words and Whiskey Short Pours, a monthly, monthly, but mostly monthly podcast where we have fun time discussing fictional worlds and the people that create them, all while boozing just a little bit. My name is Cross, and today we're chatting about my favorite book of all time, The Thief of Always by Clive Barker. I am so excited to talk about this. I also am very excited to, for the first time ever, clarify what i mean by all time in in that category so i've been like no one no one's ever been able to talk to me about this book pj except for my own dad so i am so fucking excited for this chat i'm like almost tearing up at the idea so you have been talking up this book since i've known you (sighs) i think and no one's read it until now (laughs) well here's the secret i didn't Fuck! Going into this one blind. <laughs> Why are we doing this? No. Oh, no. This whole episode is, is shot on the outset in the concept phase. I, oh man, I can't tell you how excited. We, we've we been talking about recording this for a long time. We had this big dream of like, I had this big dream, I should say you didn't, of, of putting this out on my birthday, but I wanted to make sure we got it out to patrons beforehand. So I don't think that's going to happen because I do want to give them enough time to enjoy it ahead of time, give them enough of a lead. But it's going to come out in the month of February, which is the the drab, dismal gray month of Harvey Swick's life that leads him into this quest, which was the intent all along in the timing here. So Beast. I am so very, very excited to talk about this book. Before I go too much further, farther and like cannot be stopped, we got to talk about what we're drinking. So PJ, what are you having? So I have what is effectively a rummage through my fridge and see what drinks I can create from it <laughs> cocktail, which ends up being... What I've done the last couple episodes, truly, it is an acid-adjusted pineapple juice, pineapple Mai Tai. Added a decent amount of of grenadine for color. Otherwise, it's just rum and orgeau and... Oh, I forgot to put triple sec in. All right. Yeah, it is it is a half-assed tiki drink. Mostly a Mai Tai. Yeah. <laughs> uh, following that up, I don't know if I've had this on the show yet, but I've got a sure. bunch of it. It is Blue Ox Ciders Ginger Cider. Um, Ooh, out of Bayfield, Wisconsin. <coughs> so it's really, All really right. nice. I remember it being a lot better on tap and at the winery, but mm. can't complain. It's it's a ginger yeah. cider, and that pretty much describes everything you need to know about it. Very simple, very clean, great ginger flavor coming through it. Well balanced. Yeah. Awesome. What are you drinking? I love that. PJ, I could not resist the urge to make a little bit of a custom cocktail going into this. So I actually have been working on this one for a bit. And it is, I I posted photos of it a little bit earlier inside of our Discord. Of course, those will be up on Instagram and our website as well with this because it is one that I'm particularly proud of. This is, of course, a tiki drink that I'm calling Hood's Summer Succulents. So it is two and a half ounces of Jamaican rum, 
a half ounce of Izzy's standard rum, a Wilmington rum that's very Christmas spicy. So look for something that's got like a little bit of those sort of cardamom and nutmeg notes is kind of what you're looking for in your additional rum. Eighth of an ounce of Fernet Branca, just a little bit to give it that herbal complexity in the back end. Half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, three quarter ounces, or sorry, not three quarter, three ounces, three and a quarter ounces of pineapple juice, one and a quarter ounces of lime juice, all shaken together. And then with a three quarter ounce pour of grenadine over a bar spoon, to give it this blood in the water look that you really want throughout the drink. Of course, right now I'm drinking it out of an actual tiki glass, but in the photo you can see that it kind of flows down and then coalesces into that bottom pool. So that sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. I am curious what you would think and if you would retool anything if instead of grenadine you did like port. I So I actually tried port. If you remember a couple of episodes ago, either in Vox Machina or in Mistboard, I was actually trying to refine this drink. I never said as such, but I was always like, tiki bullshit, tiki bullshit. And I tried the port one and the port one was really good, but it didn't quite hit the notes that I wanted. So I refined the port one in a different direction for Greenbone Saga, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks is going to be the twice lucky drink where I had replaced the 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 port is still in there. But I also added sake to, oh, to the right. beverage, which was great. And so that'll be on the show in a little bit. But I did want to go with like the blood in the water thing was really important to me to like have that visual. And so like I was always kind of stuck on grenadine. Fair enough. But like you could do a port float. You could do a couple of floats. I would thought about it, but it just never okay. worked out right on top of the tiki. Malbec or something. But yeah, I thought about going with a different wine. But again, I was just I kind of I got my I got like dialed in on a certain flavor profile and everything. And I was like, I also wanted to be summer and not too rich. And so like grenadine has you know, I, the the drink kind of drinks like an adult Shirley Temple with some like herbal spiciness on the back of it. So, I mean, like, obviously it's rummy still and it's still got that pineapple, but there's something about that same kind of length with that amount of grenadine and lime that makes it feel very summery, which was the, the kind of target. That's the goal. Yeah, sounds good. Pulling that up. It's super good, man. It's so tasty. That maraschino liqueur is critical. That was one of the late adds to the game that really changed it and leveled it up to the actual cocktail that I wanted it to be. It was great. It's great. I am following that up with Profusion 3.0 from Bill's Brewing Company, of which I've had a couple of times recently on the show. It's good. It's very good. Dolphin with laser beams fries, you know? Like, what's the what's what's bag? It's a hazing IPA. It's solid, you know? Yeah. Perfect. Well, Cool. This episode is going to be just a smidge different than normal. We're going to start in a slightly, it's my favorite book of all time. I mean, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And you're along for the ride. You kind of, you get the vibe. Okay, I got the vibe. So (laughs) (laughs) before we talk about the book itself, I want to take a second to have a quick chat about Clive Barker himself. So PJ, I want to start this off with what do you know of Clive Barker? I'm pretty sure it's a dog. Dog Mo- both because Clive isn't a real human name and Barker <laughs> is a great pun. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. I, do, I know nothing about Clive Barker. You know nothing about Clive Barker. Nothing at all. Do you know for a while? Oh, my God. You literally don't know anything about Clive <laughs> I know Barker. Nothing about Clive Barker. OK, <laughs> let me let me just list a couple of things off to you and see if you recognize them as far as books go so do you know hellraiser like the the movie yeah 
like yeah. the movie. Didn't know it know was Candyman? adapted from a book. It's a short story by Clyde Barker. Do you know? I've talked about the Great and Secret show, so that doesn't really count. Do Don't you know, know Candyman? Yeah. Also a Clyde Barker. So Do you know, know that God's was a, a movie or, or a, a book or short story or whatever? It was a short story adapted twice into two different movies. Hellraiser, of course, being adapted into more than one movie. The original movie, by the way, written and directed by Clyde Barker as well. So not only did he write the short story, but he also got to adapt it and turn it into the movie. Gotcha. Did he have a hand in uh, the most recent one? Yeah, he he didn't direct it, but he did help do some of the writing and touch up and okay. executive produce it as well. Did you like it? Did you see I it? I loved it. Yeah. I couldn't get through it. Really? Yeah, I stopped halfway through. That's interesting. Okay. Well, we can talk uh, about that a different time, but right. 100% worth it until the end. It's it's more in line with the books, especially the books, the short stories that come after the first one than any of the other sequels are. It is much okay. more in line with the general idea of the series as opposed to even the original adaptation. Gotcha. Not that that's that big of a deal, but yeah. So... That's crazy. Nightbreed? Do you know Nightbreed? Do not know Nightbreed. Okay, that is another, based on Cabal, which is Can a I novel guess who it's by? novella by Clyde Barker. Oh, <laughs> is it Clyde Did you want to guess? Did you want to guess? <laughs> what about Lord of Illusions by Clyde Barker? I what don't about know that one either. Gods, gods and Monsters? I've heard of both of those things. If I did. Gods and Monsters is a film that was written and directed by James. It's about James Whale. I believe it's Bill Condon of whom wrote and directed it, but executive produced by Clyde Barker, as well as the first original draft and the second draft of the script by Clyde Barker and executive produced. He was one of the biggest funders of it because he believed in this, that that production. And it won an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, Nice, of which they both accepted at the Academy Awards. So Clive so Barker Oscar is winning pro- Clive Barker, I think is how you have to Academy Award <laughs> Oscar winning Clive Barker. Yes. In addition to prolific in the horror space, I mean, Hellraiser in and of itself is, you know, a notable franchise to to a number of people, to anyone involved in horror. Candyman, of course, being another one recently adapted by Jordan Peele's group Monkey Paw and many, many, many others. I mentioned a number of the others that have only gone through the single round of adaptation, but like the man is prolific. Stephen King hailed him as the inherit. I've seen the future face of horror and it is and his name is Clive Barker. He wrote so like authors get blurb requests all the time. They're like, hey, read this book and tell me what you think, because we're going to put it on the front of the book. If like you, if you have a good feedback note, it's like, OK, so Stephen King got a book back in the 80s. And instead of writing just like a quick note that was going to be put for Clive, he wrote an entire fucking letter saying that there is not a better author working and living today than Clyde Barker. And that's like incredible from from the King yeah. of Horror to be like heralded as this new guy. Yeah. So Clive when is really that? cool. I really like Clive. Good. When was that at? When was that letter? That is a great question. It was in the 80s. Clive Barker, Stephen King letter. It's really easy to Google. So like 40 do, do, years do. ago. 1985, April 15th. Yeah, where's where's the line? So it's here's I'm just going to I'm going to read a bit of this. It's easier, I find, to blurb a book or a series of them when you're not quite as excited and bold over. I think Clyde Barker 
is so good that I am almost literally tongue-tied. Yes, I stick to it. I have seen the future of the horror genre, and his name is Clive Barker. The paraphrase actually comes from John Landau, of whom in the 1970s said that he'd seen the future of rock and roll, and his name was Bruce Springsteen. What Barker does in the Books of Blood makes the rest of us look like we've been asleep for the last 10 years. Some of the stories were so creepily awful that I literally could not read them alone. Others go up and over the edge and into the gruesome territory that no one has ever traversed since M.L. Lewis is the monk. Barker's scenes of gnarly pulpy horror should cause instant dismissal. But 40 or 50 pages is enough to convince any reader of the sense and taste. Funny word to use in connection with the stories like the midnight meat train, but it's the right word that this is a tool and not an end. The stories are compulsively readable and lit here and there with a furnace gleams of wit. And like <laughs> getting Stephen King to say anything about your book is remarkable. Getting him to not only laud your entire craft, but in so fine a point is miraculous yeah that's awesome so what the fuck is this horror writer doing writing a children's fable i mean i feel like it's pretty pretty horror a middle grade novel it's it is horror jason for sure i mean it's it's it that's that's kind of the thing though right like this guy goes from writing five very successful novels adapting one of his short stories into an incredibly successful thing, having a career in Hollywood, writing films. He's written over 25 films that were produced a very successful career in horror in Hollywood and directing many of them himself and otherwise like executive producing. And then writing this kid's fable at the tail end of that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, where's that come from? And he just, he had this idea, this short story in his head that he loved and he went to his his publisher, Harper Collins, at the time and was like, hey, I want to write a kid's book. And they said, absolutely not. We cannot. There's no way we can fucking sell that. We can't we can't sell that book. There's there's no way we can sell a children's story with your name on it. Like, how are we ever going to do that? And, you know, at, at the time, each of his books were earning him out significant advances of a quarter of a million dollars plus because they were guaranteed bestsellers. So he was guaranteed to chart with anything and everything that he did. So he came back with a finished manuscript, put it in his editor's hand or his, his, oh my God, his agent's hand and said, here it is. It'll cost you a dollar. And he sold it to them for a dollar and was like, you guys take care of marketing it, whatever else it is. It's his best selling book of all time. He sold it for a buck. (laughs) So how much did he actually make on it? Oh, way more than that, of course. But like the nature okay. of writing is generally and, and this is more, maybe something that you're unaware of. But when you turn in a book or when you're like licensed for a book, you get paid in advance. And then generally you're trying to earn out that advance for the life of the book as it sells. So you sell a book for a quarter of a million dollars. You're making four dollars a book. You don't make any more than the quarter of a million dollars they gave you until you earn past that. And then you're getting a percentage of each book. So okay. he was basically like, give me nothing. Let's go. Like, I don't need any of your money. Um, just see if it works. That's some balls. It's it's some balls. It's some balls. Crazy. Crazy. It's a great book, though. Yeah. A hundred a hundred eh, one point five million copies within the first three years, which is wild like outselling and outstripping so many stories taught across the united states and united kingdom in the years in which it was released because it was hailed as this sort of glorious text my dad owned three first edition copies like this 
I read one of these, but he loaned them to friends and then never got them back. So like it, it was it was one of those books that like pe- you would tell other people and it was just sort of this natural spreader because it does have these horror undertones. It has this tone for adults and kids and all of these other things. It's yeah. just so perfectly crafted. It's it's genius. Anyway, that's and that's some background that I wanted to give. Just from a vocabulary standpoint, it is primarily like primarily perfectly in the lexicon of children. But like there are some words in there that I didn't know. Like, yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head, but like I remember having to like really piece together what what these sentences meant from context as opposed to like actually understanding all the words, which I don't know. I like to think I've got a fairly decent vocabulary. So, yeah, I there there's something to be said about that being like the intent of a book that's aimed at like middle grade, right? Like the intent mm-hmm. of a book that's aimed at middle grade is also to teach words. And I, I definitely want to get into the construction in in a minute here, but I want to make sure that we we talked about kind of the history of Clyde Barker and why the fuck this book makes no sense in the context of this man because it is so out there. So, I would love if you would give a read to our summary here before we jump in our breakdown all right i'm going oh to. did i mention that he's a painter and an illustrator and like also is prolific there you like did dude is a one but was a wonderkind i also want to bring up the back end of this and just like talk a little bit about clive barker's life i forgot to do this a a gay man of whom was unable to afford anything in his life because of his upbringing with his family and whatnot and grew up in England and was unable to make it and actually ended up being a prostitute for a number of years, which is why there's a sexual undertone in a lot of his adult works is because he's seen a lot of kind of the dirty underside of humanity and writes a lot about this anti-materialism because when you're at your lowest and in writes from that lowest position playing upwards a lot more often than not as, as you read a lot of his works. So there's always this sort of how do I overcome this mentality with a lot of a lot of his writing? Because that's that's what he faced as as not only a gay man, but also someone who's coming out from literal bottom of the barrel poverty. Yeah. So to also break out and be this remarkable author after a life like that is an unstoppable director, writer, like inspirational in all kinds of ways. Not even American, but this is how most people would describe the American dream in its own way. Mm hmm. Yeah, I can get behind that. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> now, now I'm done. Now I'm done. Ready for the summary read by a barely literate man that stumbles over most of his words. <laughs> Written and illustrated by horror maestro Clive Barker. The Thief of Always is a tale of Harvey Swick, a bright 10-year-old boy who is bored to tears, suffocated by the Great Grey Beast February. And despite for er, and desperate for anything that will cure his doldrums, enter the ghastly grinning Rictus, an emissary of the mysterious Holiday House, who appears in Harvey's bedroom one night, promising him a world of of adventures where every morning is spring and every day is summer, where Halloween comes every dusk and Christmas comes every night. Harvey follows Rictus to Holiday House and falls under its spell, but he soon grows suspicious when he finds that. Questions are not welcome there. He investigates, discovering that the Holiday House is home to an ancient evil and that leaving will be far more difficult than he could have imagined. Was that good Woo! enough for you? That was great. That was great. You did a great uh, job. Okay. I'm very, very pleased. Yeah, yeah. Thank this is, for the praise. This doesn't need to be that kind please? of a moment. More, more, <laughs> praise, more, more praise, more praise. Do you more, need 
It was very good. It was very okay. good. Did you want? Okay, did good. you know that We're it was good? good? Now. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, PJ. Before we start, before I start, like just exploding talking about this book, I would love to hear your thoughts on it, and I will shut the fuck up while you go through them. I thought it was bad, and I feel nothing. <laughs> no, this this book's awesome. I really like. I couldn't stop reading it. I really thought I was going to sit down and read it for like an hour over the course of like a week every day, like take a little chunk here and there. And I read all of it in a sitting. I think, no, like I had a couple hour break in there when I like talked to you, but I read it all in a day and it only took me like two or three hours to read through all of it. So like, it's a very short book, but it was addicting to read it. Very, very fast paced and satisfying all the way through. Everything was so much fun and thrilling. Do you mean it? I do mean it. Do you mean it? I really, I really do mean it. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is truly in in some ways, this is like kind of a passion project because this is one of those episodes that I know just isn't going to be successful naturally because of the nature of the beast, right? This is an, an obscure book by an author of whom rarely publishes that is far outside of I mean it's still widely published you can pick you can pick up a copy of this book at any Barnes and Noble but not that not that wide of a reach despite how accessible it is in a, in a lot of different ways so it it's kind of seen its light pass and and that feels so unfortunate to me because I I love the sort of nature of this story and if there's any book that has just been living in the back of my head wishing to be adapted into a screenplay that like I would just like sit down and chop up and fucking write, it's this. Because there is nothing more that I feel is just imminently, like you said, it's it's addictive. You can just kind of peel through it in an afternoon. This feels almost like it's ready for screen, just straight from the page. It really does. Yeah. Okay. Before I get too far, I do want to read the opening paragraph because it is... My favorite opening paragraph of any story right next to the gunslinger's opening paragraph. So the great gray beast of February had eaten Harvey Swick alive. Here he was buried in the belly of that smothering month, wondering if he would ever find his way out through the cold coils that lay between here and Easter. It's so simple. It's so brilliant. It sits on the top of my brain Every time we enter February, every time I think about my birthday, every time everyone tweets that February is the worst month in the world because it so perfectly captures the tone that everyone has about this. It being this sort of inanimate beast of boredom and the doldrums of mundaneity. I just, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's great. It's so good. It is really good. Yeah. You were talking a lot about the language and sort of the way that this is this book has been made. I, I find this book to be really meticulously crafted and brilliant and really meant to be accessible for all ages. And I mentioned that I want to talk about the all time thing. I'm going to put a pin in that before I talk about that. But it's truly kind of a miraculous thing. I don't want to linger this too much. But like Brandon Sanderson say, says that he aims for the greats like Bradbury and like Ray Bradbury and Orwell, George Orwell, for simplicity in the way that they communicate things. And this is what I think of long before I think of some anything that Brandon Sanderson's written outside of Tress. That is the closest he's gotten to this kind of a tone. Yeah, totally see that. That like 
if if you want to talk about capturing that, none of that gets anywhere close to this. And so it's like, if you, if you want to do that, you got to actually do it, which includes including some flowery language, which he's done now. And I'm I'm very appreciative of it because it feels like he's hearkened to that all the time, but never has done it. And so like every time that we'd sit in those episodes, I'm like, yep, he says he's window pane writing. Yep, he says he's window pane writing. I just can't help but think of this, which is so much closer to window pane writing, just like Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes or anything by Roald Dahl or most things by George Orwell. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Gorgeous prose. It's gorgeous. Really it's really, really good. <laughs> yeah. That like it, that first paragraph that you read really struck me. And I had no idea what I was getting into with this book. Like I had I told you no nothing. idea. You told me nothing about it. So my mind was immediately going to the idea of like a physical beast that was the manifestation of February. I'm like, all right, are we going to see other months? Are we going to like, what's, what's this going to look like? But I really imagined it as a physical manifestation as opposed to just a wonderful description of just the most boring gray setting. And I, I imagine it as like Seattle, basically. My brain goes to Minnesota, right? Think about think about what February is in Minnesota. It is snow-lined streets that are frozen and gray because they've yeah. melted just enough to pick up the dirt, but they're still there because it's too fucking cold. You go outside and the wind hurts your face like a howling beast. I mean, yeah. there's just all of these different things that are just like mashing at you and gnashing at you. And so you're trapped inside. You can't do anything. And especially for someone whose birthday was in fucking February. So, like I wanted to do shit outside with my friends for my birthday growing up so much. And so we would sometimes throw my fucking birthday party in June or July so that we could do something outside <laughs> and it would just be like, fuck February. And so like, this was the epitome of like that mentality of like, you can't fucking do anything fun. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I feel the great, great beast of February, particularly potently. Totally. And I, the only reason I, I said Seattle was because okay. I feel like it mentions rain and not snow. I so. think it does. I think you're so it is generally a warmer climate. This this is an interesting thing where this book feels almost out of place, out of location. It's not described as being in the United States. It's not described as being in the UK. And I have three different versions and they are actually localized differently. Um so the the first edition is this is the American first edition, not the UK first edition. But I do have the UK third edition over there, mass market paperback. And it does it does localize things like trash bins versus cans. And I think there's reference to a president versus a prime minister. So it does vary by book. So interesting. It is it is American totally localized. Or the... Yours is the American version. You've got the yeah. you've got this one. Not this one. Okay. This one. Yeah, this one. Which is the one that you can conventionally find in American Barnes and Nobles. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so the core point, it's fun fact. That is the only edition that I've seen. I looked at all the covers. It's the only edition that I've seen that doesn't actually feature Clyde Barker's artwork on the cover. All of the rest of them do. Even like later asks for illustrations. So that's that the only one, weird. which is super weird. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Very strange. But yeah, side side tangent to this whole conversation about like localized it's meant to be kind of out of place and the the title and i keep saying it is the thief of always 
but he does specify because he thinks it's important a fable this is a fairy tale in a lot of ways this is meant to be something that is evocative themes of motifs of of sort of deeper meanings intentionally on the top we're saying that at the top so you're aware that this is not the same as other things it's going to be predictable that's the nature of a fable is that you kind of understand where it's going so yeah not that it is entirely but like that's sort of the nature of a fable right what do you mean by is meant to says it right does it say it like so it doesn't on the new copies but it does in all like if you if you open even to the i believe the front page should, should say a thief of always a fable but that that's the intent right this is specifically subtitled the thief of always a fable it does not it does in yours nope <clears throat> oh it doesn't oh fuck that's weird okay anyway the point being is it is a fable right like this right. is meant to be and intended <laughs> to be a fable so it's it's meant to set those expectations. Oh, I just got a Charlie horse in the worst way in my fucking leg. Ah! Cut, 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 cut. Ow! Now leave fuck. it in. Oh! <laughs> Crossland's <laughs> dying. Yeah! <laughs> He's dying of excitement. Ooh. <laughs> I, I literally am. I've been so, like, clenched. <laughs> what the fuck is this? <laughs> This is new. You, this has never happened. This has never PJ, happened. You should help him. I can't. <laughs> I can't do anything but laugh. Oh, okay. All right. All right that sides was the coverage. Now I can massage it. Cut, cut. The cut, Thief cut. of Always by Clive Barker. We're now <laughs> closing the story. And <laughs> Mother of God. <laughs> I got so excited about fables. <laughs> fables. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So the book is a fable. <laughs> the book is a fable. The book is a fable. D- I guess it didn't color any of your expectations for it because you didn't know, like, that wasn't specified. Right. And you read this. You only read this physically, yes? Correct. I mm. did not listen to it. Okay. Dang. So I read and listened to it just because I, I wanted to review it a couple of different times and just, you know, rehear the performance. I had originally got it with a credit forever ago because I wanted something. I wanted to listen to it in the car when I was going back and forth from work for a while. So I'd gotten it as a as a reminder of that. And it's great to have. Again, it's my favorite book. So it feels like I don't need to justify that to anyone. But here I am justifying it. Nonetheless, it's only four and a half hours. It's so short as far as audiobooks go. And I... All right. It's a fable. So the the themes are very clear on the top end to some degree or that this is going to be a thematic piece. And I think that's mostly intended for the adult audience. There, there's a split here, I think, in some ways between this. And so I want to clarify a little bit my 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 saying of all time, if that makes sense. You're gonna you can feel free to ask me, aren't you? No, I'm not going to pull this out from under you. <laughs> this is this is really just like a, a larger justification of why I say this is my favorite book of all time, right? And why it is, it hasn't been dethroned ever, and likely will not be. I cannot see a reason as to why this will ever not be in that slot. If that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Every everything else is competing for second place. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> like <laughs> there, there's just never there's not there's not room for anything else. And part of that is because. As a 12-year-old, I remember this 
I remember so much. The, the first time that I read this, I was young. I was, I think I was 11 or 12. And I, I'd been deep into fiction at this point. This wasn't my first experience with horror. This wasn't my first experience with a lot of like even more adult fiction. This was like kind of in some ways, you might think of it as a backward step from what I was reading at the time. I had I, read The Stand at this point, which includes a graphic demonic rape scene. <laughs> like, I, I, like I, I was very deep in, in stuff that I probably shouldn't have been reading by comparison. And so I go back to this book after reading that and sell by Stephen King. And, you know, I was deep inside of Harry. I had read most of Harry Potter up until that point. I don't think it had all been published and was just loving it. And then my dad was like, you should read Clive Barker. Start with this one. And so he handed me The Thief of Always. And I was like, OK, perfect. This is great. So he hands me this first edition copy that looks exactly like the one that I have with the house and the mouth on it. And I was like, whoa, what the what the fuck is this? And I, I just remember as I was racing through this book and, and really kind of enjoying it overnight one night, I was I was in a bunk bed. I like had a bunk and then a desk beneath it in the room that I grew up in. And so very close to the ceiling, I had a little lamp that tucked up in the corner and, you know, go to bed at 930 or whatever. And I popped open the book to read because I was allowed to read however late I wanted. Uh, and I read it until two in the morning. I just could not stop. I could not be stopped. There was a certain point where I started to fall asleep and I pulled out my iPod and I put on Mute Math's Armistice, which is also still in my head permanently as like a permanent fixture of this whole relationship. And I remember just like listening to Armistice to keep myself awake, which is like a running tempo record. And I, I finished the book and I freaked out and wake up in the morning, have to go to school and whatever at like seven in the morning. And I'm talking to my dad and I'm like, I read the whole book. And and he goes, you know, like, what, what what did you think? And I was like, it was fucking incredible. And he he's like, yeah, what did you think about like the house and sort of the trappings? And this is what like really started my appreciation for like loving and evaluating literature. This is where like my it was more than just what the plot was for me. And that's where this like love came from. That is the spawn of the show. It's the impetus of a lot of appreciation for deeper things. And I think that I attribute that entirely to the fable aspect of like why my dad could have this conversation because the themes are very clear in some ways. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's super cool. And, and so like you, you tie in these elements of this conversation and my dad bringing up like Rictus being like the angler fish tentacle and i was like well what the, what the fuck's an anglerfish dad like i don't know what that is and so then he explains the concept of an anglerfish and i'm like oh shit i just thought of it as like peter pan but fucked up and so like as i would pitch this to most people and talk about it over time i was like yeah it's like messed up peter pan like which i mean that's almost like it's uh, it's an equation well no but peter pan's already pretty <coughs> fucked up if you really think about it true <laughs> so, <laughs> stockholm like, syndrome yeah it, it it's what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's redundant to, to say oh, that, it's, but it's it absolutely yeah, fits. Fair point. Yeah, it's also reductive. But like sometimes when you're pitching it to people, reduction yeah, you, is you what need, you're looking for. You need an elevator yeah. pitch. You need a couple word like hook. Yeah, yeah. So that's generally been my hook. I I intentionally avoided pitching it to you since we started the show outside of the trailer, in which I did mention that I think I literally said it's like fucked up Peter Pan. And then I went on to describe a different Clyde Barker book, The Great and Secret Show. But yes, this this story is it, it just is meant so much to me. So as a 12 year old is chronic, it was chronologically very important, important to my enjoyment of literature. Reading it as an adult, it is it, it still holds all of that nostalgic meaning to me, all of that past meaning. But on top of that, once you move past the sort of 
intended fable for a kid of like a being careful what you wish for sort of the the general time notes and the sort of temptation of different tasks and the way that you can get sucked into things it it's it's about time and wishing to return to that time where everything was easier as a kid and like wanting that time back and never being able to reclaim it really like defeating hood even in the end he he manages to reclaim that time but we as adults know that that isn't possible anymore it's not possible to wind the clock back that way and so there's there's almost a longing inside of this book as an adult that just ascri- it, it writes something totally different on my soul where something else was before and ugh yeah again i just have a tough time describing it fully mm-hmm. god, so that that story. leaves it uh, what was that sorry god it's such a good story mhm on top of that it's just a great book right like the the reason it is so impactful is because of the language, because of the prose. That's why it stands out to me. And then you also have this sort of layer, layered approach of what it means over time, which is why, for me, it is my favorite book of all time, because it has dominated so much of my life um, in terms of thoughts and how I even think about things and how I relate to things and the way that I approach the world that I I, I view it through I view everything through these like cynical glass windows of the hood house. Like I, the book is actually very cynical. I'm looking at like material belongings and relationships and the promises that people are willing to extend to you. And I can't help but see that cynicism being founded in me from this book. I mean, (laughs) think about the presence and that sort of reflection on them, remembering that it's all ashes. Yeah. Like that's entirely really the death of jive. Yeah. Yeah. It's nothing in the end. It, it is. It is. This book is, is lovely and entirely nihilistic in, in the same stroke. Like, Oh, there, there's this book oozes depth. And so I, I have a tough time. Like I've never, I went through and like read as, as many one and two star reviews as I could today to try to get like a grasp of like why people might not like it just just because okay. like what what don't people like about this and for the most part it's people picking at the predictability of the story and so that's where i go like okay it's it's a fable it's for kids like this is not it's not but like you can get stuff out of it as an adult like it's not crazy mm-hmm. like it's not i don't know yeah fuck so yeah Anything that's else? it any any other big points that were made in those reviews not much a lot a lot of the one star reviews were kids like clearly leaving good good read reviews where they may have been forced to read it in class or something like that it's so (laughs) clear when you read them because the english is so bad on them where it's they're clearly developing a love for language or an understanding of language and some of them are very clearly like I didn't like the story, but I loved the cats. And there's like, there's at least one or two reviews in there that are like that. Where it's just like, oh, you're fixated on some element of the story and you aren't able to take in the rest, which is okay. It's bound to happen. It's just like, what do you do with a review like that? That's fair. So I'm going to have a tough time not being like very excited and animated this whole show because I just am about Dude, this I love story. It. Yeah. So we've talked about sort of the the core element of this, which is it's this reminiscent story of Peter Pan. There's the story surrounding like monkey's paw and wish fulfillment and being careful what you wish for being this current, this like omnipresent theme. We meet Harvey Swick, 
at his home where he's eventually abducted by Rictus, where we're introduced to the first member of the cast of the Holiday House. You could call them vampiric assistants or any number of sort of other names that are associated. But I, I wanted to get your your thoughts on where you thought the story was going when it started. Like you said, the Great, Great Beast of February distracted you from the intent and thoughts of, of the direction of this in some ways. But once yeah. Rictus entered the picture. So once Rictus entered the picture... My brain went to the idea of like Rictus being like kind of acting outside of what his actual desires were. Like he was being forced to act like this, um, which doesn't seem to actually be the case. Like I I was kind of surprised by that. But also I, I just have to say like my interpretation and my view of Rictus and like how I imagined him very much changed from the beginning like imagining him as like this really sort of jovial well-dressed but like not super fancy character like i I almost imagined a male version of mary poppins Mm. right away sort of yeah down to the sort of heathered suit is what i imagined sort of like a gray or tannish suit. And that definitely took on more and more of a like angular demonic form as we got more and more of Rictus going forward. I I agree with you on the on the Mary Poppins approach, right? Like I say Peter Pan because of like the idea of like going to Neverland and and so he does have this he come it's so funny as an adult again reading the story, he comes in as a salesman basically pitching this idea of going mm-hmm. somewhere. And so he's there, you know, in in sort of a a sleazy, silver-tongued way, and that's meant to be this representation of what something, what words can promise but fail to deliver on. And I totally agree. Like Mary Poppins, butt messed up makes sense. Like the medicine, sugar makes the medicine go down, but the medicine's poison, and you don't even know it. Like, and that's mm-hmm. sort of the spin, right? On on that. Yeah. Oh, this is. This book is despicably good. I every time I talk about it, I don't get to talk about it ever. So yeah, but yeah, definitely thought he it was going into a place where like he genuinely wanted to help out Harvey, mm-hmm. but was like obligated to act in this mm. way, as opposed to him having aligned sort of views as uh, that- the house itself. That's why I've always stuck with my dad's imagery of the pitch of this being the angler, right, of an anglerfish, because it is a part of the body and it cannot survive without the rest, right? And so Rictus is this sort of like dangling outreach to like try to get people to come in and then being caught in the, the teeth and otherwise. But at the same time, the very end of the novel is fascinating because the the lure is trying to separate from the body when it can't do anything without the body. So there there's something interesting there too. But yeah, I've I've always appreciated Rictus is of of the the ghouls the most interesting because you get him the most on screen and he's the most intimately connected with Harvey. And the most human. I'd say. I would agree. Yeah, he he and Jive, right? Like of of the group. Jive right. is almost comically happy and jovial and, you know, meant to be excitable. So his intent is to keep people there and interested, so to speak. But I, I think it makes sense for us to talk about the supporting cast of the vamps slash the Fae. This is one of those interesting notes where there isn't a strict line here, but 
Thomas brought up inside of our Discord and otherwise that we have to talk about the fact that you should never take food from Faye. Never eat the Faye food. Get fucked if you eat the Faye food. Yeah. Um, which is clearly what's happening here. Or, uh, yes. Yes, yeah. I'll agree with that. It seemed for a while there that it was mostly just an illusion. But there's something to it. There, there's something to the tangibility of like you sit down and eat this food, even if you know that it's not real, that you'll get sucked into it deeper. But I don't mm-hmm. think that there's anything inherently like nefarious about the food itself beyond just the fact that it's an illusion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's mostly an, I, I would think, especially given the commentary, right? Like I don't, you have to ascribe sort of fake characteristics. You don't have to, but I would kind of ascribe some fake characteristics to these things, but it's not as though it's naturally enchanting. It's just that the it's trying to capture a feeling. The holiday house is trying to put you in a place and time in which you feel happiest. And so that's why it cycles through feelings. That's why it does the food that it does. That's why it brings out the toys that it does, even though it's all ash. Yeah. So it's, it's more about capturing the feeling than it is about sort of the quasi manipulation like you're saying that that something fey would actually be right so to take the take that point and extrapolate it a little bit Mm -hmm. harvey refusing to eat the food was less about not wanting to be tricked and more about not wanting to give in to the temptations Mm -hmm. and as soon as he decides to accept the food he has physically given into the the temptations the i think this is a good point to yeah yeah i think this is a good point to ask too before we get into the supporting cast what you think the central themes are what were the themes that you latched onto the most it's not that there's a right answer there there are a lot of answers here this is a wide-reaching story in a lot of ways i talked about the things that were very impactful for me you know both growing up and as an adult but what were some that you latched onto? i mean looking at the very large overarching ones, like the, the really, really obvious ones. It's a cautionary tale about the, the, the theme of being happy with what you have, being careful for what you wish for is like, I think the biggest one, there's some smaller themes about sort of the dangers of indulgence and those nihilistic themes that we talked about a little bit, but maybe those are a little bit more in the background. But yeah, be careful what you wish for and be happy with what you have, I think are the two biggest ones. That it's, it's so interesting. I, I totally see be happy with what you have and how that could be picked up. But I think the story is also pointing at like, it's not about being happy with what you have necessarily, but it's about understanding what you have and what you have to lose. I think that's more of it, right? So it's like what you have to lose, not being happy with what you have, because there are opportunities that Harvey could have had over those 30 years with his parents that he loses that he would have loved to have had instead of the, the temporary joy of X, Y, Z exploit. So it's, it's not, it's not, I I see where, I see what you're saying. I think it's just like a step further. That makes sense. That's fair. But that's also because I've read this a hundred times and, you know, like I know, I know the first paragraph I cite it at least once a year. I've tweeted it eight times, I bet. Like I, 
many years for many Februarys, I would tweet it on February 1st. It's just one of those things that I would do because it's just innately me. Like most people tweeting about the, the fucking Green Day song, Wake Me Up When September Ends. For me, it's the Great Grey Beast of February. Yeah. <laughs> so I even send, I send it in my family chat every year. I don't know. It's, it's the line that I can recount from a book at any point. But makes sense. that and the gunslinger and whatnot. But I'm not going to read that line for you right now because we're going to get there eventually. So. I can't even know the first paragraph. No, man. That first line <laughs> is so fucking good. Got to read it yourself. Got to read it yourself. So let's let's talk about these the supporting cast, right? We've got Rictus, we've got Jive, we've got Karna, and we've got Mar. Inevitably, we're also going to talk about the their ends, right? Because that ties in here. But what what did you think of the and I guess Miss Griffin, she's not necessarily a fae, she's an actual person, but of the supporting cast of the the sort of villainous side, she's a little bit more neutral. What do you think of the cast of characters? I spent so much time trying to find, like, trying to make sense of the names, and I'm sure there's a like, I'm sure there's symbolism there, but I don't know it. Hmm. Um, Karna would be the only one that I could like pull on. Maybe Jive. But um, what do you pull? Where do you pull? Karna, carnage, violence. Like it it is the the physically, the physically terrifying one. The the one that's actually a physical, like violent threat. I don't know about it being a K instead of a C, but it's evocative of that in my head. Jive, jovial, upbeat. But Rictus and Mar are enigmas to me as far as the naming convention goes. Honestly, they're genius, right? So like Karna, you nailed. Jive, you nailed. And sort of, and we've talked about it a little bit. Like Jive is this sort of jovial approach. It's, it's meant to be happy. It's meant to keep them enraptured. Karna is meant to be this sort of intimidating force that's there, right? Mar is the word for disfigure to change mm. impair the appearance of and so okay. mar is the one of whom shifts them into their halloween costumes to be this grandiose thing and so mm-hmm. it name is function in some ways inside of this which is very common in fables the big bad wolf doesn't have a name he's a term and you just know him as the big bad wolf he's probably right. george or some bullshit but you don't need to know the name because you know the function so again fable and then you've got rictus which is a smile or a grin and and sort of like a locked smile and a grin so and that's what rictus means it's a it is a thesaurus level word i don't think most people would know that but again intended for kids and like the intent is when a kid reads something and you don't understand it what you say you get a dictionary and so you read it and you're like oh he's grinning all the time he's always smiling he's got this sort of otherworldly like i'm gonna rope you in like come on listen to me kid vibe to him i don't know if any like i don't know of anybody that would decide to search for a name in a dictionary i have not heard the name so agreed but yeah 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 makes sense yeah i don't i think you'd just be like oh his name's rictus like you you'd probably brush it off but given even an inkling of like is that a word could that be a word you might look it up as a kid and be a little bit curious for for me, that was very common. I don't know if you ran into that, but I would always come to my parents and ask them the word, and then they'd be like, go look it up in the fucking dictionary, you idiot. You keep doing this. That happened to you? No, I didn't read much. 
Yeah, oh, fuck. <laughs> it genuinely didn't mean that in the way that it may be implied. <laughs> but, <laughs> fuck. I yep. Yeah, there's not, there's nothing quite like reading the stand and asking what coitus means to your parents when you're 11 years old and then being That's like hilarious. You probably shouldn't be reading that book, but like you're 700 pages in, so am I going to stop you? <laughs> like, <laughs> I cannot do what's been done. Coitus means go to bed. <laughs> coitus <laughs> means look it up on your own. I'm pretty sure that's literally what my mom said. I don't know. Me. I don't know if Do you want I don't know if that's better. Do you want a 12-year-old looking up I guess coitus is probably fine to look up on the internet. You got to understand too. My internet was heavily parental controlled growing up <laughs> as well. True. So like I could not have hit a porn site if I tried That's fair. <laughs> at, at the time. But yeah, still is. So yeah, <laughs> still. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't have I tried mostly because I don't know the names like it's not or the terms like I don't know. Yeah, I am for not really. <laughs> what does this mean? Mom and dad, this is probably one of the few episodes you're listening to of the show because you've read these books and I am so sorry. <laughs> you're fine. It's been for this bit. No, I know. I'm just perfectly you know. fine. Yeah. Right, right, right. Are you apologizing for my parents? Coitus is not <laughs> that explicit of a word. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's mostly the porn jokes. <laughs> oh boy, did he uh, try to get through those parental blocks? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> not for that reason. It was mostly for, for pirating, <laughs> for research. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still coughing a bunch, so we're gonna have to. Unfortunately, edit this one a little bit heavier. But this book goes in so many different directions that I want to talk about. Did you have anything else in the supporting cast? I, we don't need to resolve them right now necessarily, but on the on the top end. What was the name of the the cook? Mrs. Griffin or Miss Mrs. Griffin. Griffin. Yeah. She was lovely. Right? I really was expecting another like more nefarious turn from her though. Like I, I expected her to be an actual installment of the holiday house as opposed to just a long lasting resident. And she kind of is because she is a long lasting resident, right? Like she yeah. kind of is an installment and a fixture, but that, that does still kind of beg the problem or the question of like her complacency in a lot of this, Right. Which is why I think wherein all of the other kids faded back to their times and like were likely able to live out their lives from their origin points, she just disappears is because of the sort of emotional payoff of like, it's not necessarily right to give you back what you stole from everyone else for so long. Like, there's this other assumption of the kids that are in the drowning pool in, in the back as fish. It's like he didn't even, he experienced joy in bursts. Day one, he meets Lulu and he meets Wendell, becomes friends with them, meets Jive, meets he goes out and does Halloween, meets the hangman, which is fucking crazy. That's when you know this book is fucked up is the moment that you meet the hangman. You're like, something's wrong here. Like, this is really messed up. Um, on the other side of that, there's also them both being vampires, right? This the scene of Halloween and Harvey Swick wanting to be a vampire is an allusion to him eventually also being a thief of always in the same way that is mentioned in the very end where they're both thieves because they, he desires to be a vampire 
fictionally for fun reasons <laughs> and and the house is actually a vampire <laughs> yeah. so there's there's some nice mirroring there between the two characters as well but yeah halloween is really kind of the first big gap for me where i hit you hit the plot and you're like oh wish fulfillment and gifts and presents and food and whatever you want and then you hit halloween that first time and what do you think of of that whole action and the masks and the the discovery and becoming and the senses and how that all shifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon as it, as I don't know what it says about me that as soon as they make an assertion, I immediately try to like push back against it. Like they said, it's not actually Halloween out there. I think it is. <laughs> like, I don't know what that says about me as a person, but no, I, well, I think the book is like also pushing against you in a smart way too. Right. We like, Here's the thing about fables. They're meant to be direct. Like it, yeah. this is a direct t- story. You can't get more direct than the thorn in the elephant's puss foot that the mouse pulls out. Right. Like there's, the I know that I said puss. I foot. <laughs> the thorn in the elephant's foot that the mouse pulls out. Right. So the mouse pulls the thorn out because like he can't, the, the elephant can't fucking reach it. And he's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm not going to stomp on the mouse because he's sweet. And like, because he helped me out. That's the whole fucking story. Like it's it's meant to be very direct, very communicative of you know the reason that mice and elephants get along. So they don't, right? No, they do. No, elephants are scared of mice. Well, they are because they think they have something in them and that they're in pain. It's an Aesop, man. What? Because they think they have a thorn in their foot. Yeah. So they react to mice because they think the the mice are coming up to them. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, right. Yeah, no, I'm talking about in fiction, man. You gotta, (laughs) yes, elephants are afraid of mice. (laughs) I was talking about the fable. Okay. Yep. Sorry. (laughs) No, you're, you're good. You're good. I've been, I've been like hyper fixated on fables in part because of Dimension 20's most recent season of which is Never After, which is about fairy tales and fables. And so a lot of this also feeds into it's a horror season it's wonderful it's a high high kill rate season high i i die like lots of death <laughs> copious Good. amounts of death a crazy amount of death for a D campaign even if it's an anthology with limited shit like it is wild and long-reaching effects which is very cool like death as a mechanic is interesting again but anyway they the story is fixated on fables and so i've been reminded of a lot of these trends and tropes and thoughts and ideas and that's that's what's gotten me again immersed in this idea of like reminding myself that this is not just a story that i love but part of the reason that it is as obvious and as accessible as it is is because it's intended for a young audience but it's when you hit those other notes that it it has the depth as you understand the themes and you see beyond just the veneer of the fable mm-hmm. Anyway, that's circling back to the same thing. That fucking all the clothes in the room. Was that a hint for you at all? Yep. Did you think Absolutely. about that? <laughs> all right. As a kid, no fucking clue. I was like, costumes, neat. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Didn't even think about it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that's the right response. <laughs> As an adult, I was like. How the fuck didn't I miss that? How did I miss that? And, you know, you're you're just not susceptible to that kind of storytelling. Your experience hasn't given you that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. 
wonderfully ominous, paints this as a long-term portrait. And as you think about the depths of that well when we get there with Lulu, it's just so revealing as to how many fish there really are in that pond that he goes out and sails his arc on. Mm-hmm. That just sorry to go back to that first Halloween. Yeah. Um which this connects to. It that's true. They see I think Karna fly away. Yeah. Yeah, Karna's lurking. Lurking but like flies off the peak of the house and like and mm-hmm. just flies off into the bit into the distance. Was there ever a reason given as to why? I believe that's around the time that Lulu disappears, right? That's Lulu's last day, if I remember correctly. Uh, I can't remember. So let me double be. check, because I remember when that is. Because Hangman is 10, and we meet Lulu as a fish in 12. And I think Harvey recognizes that she's gone in 10, if I remember correctly. Because 12 is also when they, they set out to leave. What do you dream? Hungry Waters is when he visits the water. Past from present about thieves meet all these chapter titles are so good too for the record but lulu's only in the short story for a short time yeah lulu's really brief as far as characters go but impactful because ultimately that note is important and especially when it comes full circle in the end you know incredibly relevant also the fish attacking the boat that he sets out on the waters in uh, in chapter seven or eight is incredibly relevant because it's him. It's the fish trying to communicate with him, right? It's it's the fish trying to tell him that not as all as it seems right away because they know that this is messed up. They know it's up. Yeah. Um. So that means that Halloween is before that. Yep, it is. Well, yes. So it's a death between seasons is what what the chapter is called, which is also to say the prisoners. Yep. So she is gone. Seen and unseen. Wendell, Lulu, Ugly Sin, present from the past. When he puts the, he sees Lulu in the, in the area of the pond. When he's bringing yes. the, uh, the ark out there. Uh-huh. So she's not a fish. Um, no, right. That is the last time that he sees her, actually. So it's not, he's not swooping out. So Karna at that point is just swooping out. That's just precursory swoop, I should say. Because Lulu is there for Christmas because she gets the box with the lizards. Which is fucking hilarious. Yeah, right. The, <laughs> the whole thing. She's like, I don't know. She's like out of ideas is kind of the thought, right? Like yeah. she's out of ideas. And so she's almost ready to escape or like try to. And so that's when the house is like... You got to stay. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't even like lizards, but I have lizards now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the story like quickly progresses and we get this idea of like the seasons passing as the years do in like this sort of accelerated timeline. So this should be another reason that this is very clear that this is a, a, a natural story that I would love because it is also a time warp story, a time loop story in some ways, mm-hmm. which is my favorite genre of story as a person. Right. So what's duh. not to love? <laughs> yeah, what's what's not to love, right? What's Looper's my favorite movie. Of- this is my favorite book. It all tracks. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but as a fable, this is very interesting because at the halfway point is really when the story turns. So we only spend 10 chapters ish kind of learning about the holiday house. It's on the second 
Halloween that we actually experience in which, which I believe is chapter 10, seen and unseen, in which Harvey comes the vampire again and you get that iconic artwork of him standing on the stoop kind of like a gargoyle almost overhanging and he overhears wendell because of his hearing with with his big ears and whatnot and here's kind of the sellout moment of you know take him instead and kind of almost turns on his friend Ah, in those moments that's a i mean that's a natural thing to like do in the sense of self-preservation but that is a it's also a kid. situation to like find yourself in and like right i feel like that's something that goes pretty unresolved like just kind of forgiven and forgotten about for the most part I, I I think I agree with you. I can definitely understand that. I don't think it's fully resolved, but I think it is in the way that like there's this glamour over top of the whole house. And it's hard for Harvey to think outside of his mindset as a bat and being enchanted by the magic of the house in that moment. So I think mm-hmm. his feelings in that chapter are enhanced by him being turned into a bat, if that makes sense. So it's all fairly relative to what his experience looks like in those moments. So, Yeah. That's that's kind of where I, I I imagine it, if that makes sense. And so in post, though, I do agree with you. It, it is one of those things that is just sort of almost un it, it, because he's a kid. It's not. But for most people, that would be almost like unforgivable in a way where it's like you're selling me out to like eat him instead. Like that's pretty egregious. And even as far as kids go, that's a betrayal in a lot of ways. And Harvey views it as yeah. such, which is why he does the swoop down to begin with. Right. But. I don't know. It also yeah. makes me wonder like how terrifying he actually looked in that moment because that, that illustration is him with wings, but that he's got, he's got some cat eyes and he's got some. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine he looks a lot more fucked up, especially if Wendell is pissing himself like he is. Right. Right. Literally, very literally pissing himself. There's the other one, too, of him. Hang- the hangman photo is so cool with the pumpkin with two eggs on its face for eyes. Oh, my God. Incredible. The illustrations are great. Yeah, absolutely. The the thing that gets me. So Mar is clearly forming him, right? There, There is a photo at some point in the book, and I'm not going to dig through it right now to try to show just you. But there is a photo that shows him with these really almost dramatic ears like they're from the mask and it almost seems like a hood pulling up over his head to like give him the appearance of like these really big ears that are sort of like an arm distance apart like giant almost antlers off of him to kind of make it very dramatic versus the sort of mar hand melding that happened when mar turned him into the the bat that night which feels more gradual they look like graduated elven ears to some degree and so i imagine somewhere between the two is where harvey was at that point because there's also the image of him flying over top and the it being the like curved tops of the talons of the the bat wings while wendell's cowering on the ground mm-hmm. if anyone wants to pay me to write a screenplay i'll do it for four dollars no residuals no royalties just make the fucking movie be sweet. I'll do it. I don't care. Cool. Dope. 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 So 
obviously we have to talk about the fish in the fish pond, right? Which are the, the stolen souls of the children as we learn over the course of the story. It's the first inkling, the first serious inkling of something being wrong when the fish ultimately come up and knock over the ark. And in sort of the way that the story transitions from there, from an exploration of Neverland and the sort of dream state of want getting whatever you want into a, well, we got to fucking solve this problem, which is most of the book is solving it. So. Yeah, there's. From the jump, there's just something, something that doesn't fit about this pond. In the backyard of this house, like it, it just the way it's described feels like it's just out of place. I, I, I don't know the best way to describe it, but it feels like if you're playing Minecraft and cross over into a different biome where it's just suddenly so very different and like there's no transition period and no like no smooth gradient like it, for mm-hmm. for whatever reason the description of that pond of that lake feels so starkly different than the rest of the property and I don't know what to make of it I I think that's exactly what you should make of it I think that's the intent right is that it's meant to be Again, fable, not meant to be more than sort of the the overture text of the reason that it stands out to you is because it's intended to. It's meant to right. be this sort of this note of this is different. Why is it different? And even Mrs. Griffin's warnings to not go there is meant to ward us in the other direction, make us think that we should be going elsewhere and that this isn't something to go to. And Wendell's like, yeah, it's fucking boring and a little weird and like, I don't know, it's not worth your time. You go do Easter instead in the morning. Like, that's way cooler. Don't go to the fucking pond. That makes sense. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who cares? That tracks. Right. <laughs> there, there's a lot of who cares. And, and Wendell is sort of the embodiment of the kid of whom doesn't care to investigate, which many a people would be. <laughs> yeah. And that feels intentional and imposed upon him. Especially mm-hmm. when we get towards the end of that book, like that is the calling card of he's been taken by the house again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he is just so weak willed, perhaps entrancible by these things because he lacks them in other places in his life. It's wish fulfillment again, which is easy to get sucked into. I mean, it would it'd be hard to say if I could spend like wishbone right now, crack, boom, if I could spend every day doing exactly this all the time it would be killer i would love it right now in 10 years i may be like all right so we we can change the format right we can do something different we can do improv comedy can we do like you know i either just at some point you're gonna grow out of something and wendell can't because he's a young kid and doesn't know what else there is and so he just is easily able to be picked up by the house again yeah, weak-willed motherfucker. I yeah, I said weak-willed, and I feel so bad about it. But at the same time, it's you're right. It's you're yeah, it's pretty much the not truth. Strong of heart or mind <laughs> or, or body, yeah, or <laughs> anything. <laughs> Spirit. He's got a strong imagination. Does he? The hangman's pretty cool. I don't know. That's fair. Good point. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty neat. Yeah. One one sided pranks. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Can give them, can't take them. 
<laughs> I know we're in the middle of breaking down this story, but I want to take a quick segue to talk about the things that the story inspired. You're going to know none of them, but for the audience out there, actually, you're going to know at least one, at least one. This story is cited as an inspiration for The Nightmare Before Christmas and the entire idea behind sort of the different holidays and the regions and sort of the regionality of it all. Very clear inspiration there. This is often, this is directly cited as an inspiration for, go ahead. Oh, I'm just counting how many I know. Joe Hill's Nosferatu, of course, for Joe Hill. Nosferatu being an inspiration here makes entire sense because he is Stephen King's child and was undoubtedly made to read this. And so naturally, he would think of holidays in a fucked up way, like the story kind of leads you to believe, thinking about the loss of innocence and otherwise adapted into a wonderful TV show. This also leads into, God, there were like four or five others that I had mentally listed, but I didn't. Point being that this is like inadvertently because of, be, of it being so successful in the times in the 80, in the late 90s or early 90s, excuse me, was culturally impactful across a number of mediums and genres. And it was on the forefronts of a lot of people's brains as they thought about these things. And so it's become, while not a known cultural touchstone, a known entity, a known point. What I wouldn't give for a Guillermo del Toro adaptation of the story Oh my god, <laughs> that'd be so so cool! <laughs> Wild. It's it's but perfect yeah. up, perfectly up his like, perfectly in his wheelhouse. I guess I should say. Yeah, it's a fable. It's a fairy tale. It's right there, right in that sort of it's meaty zone. It's got some horror up. elements. A little fuck, little fucked up, <laughs> a little spooky, and like big, some like not massive Catholic vibes, but like some subtle Christian vibes. Like not not massive, but like a little bit. And just the idea of all practical, like, monsters. Perfect oh, yeah. for him. Yeah. Like, this idea of a smile ripping out and, like, being really grinny and then, like, the whole house becoming the monster in the end. So Monster house, this... an obvious vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to, I was literally just about to ask, like, was that? Can you imagine it not being pulled from that? Even so, there, there were a couple of mentions of of a couple of Stephen King books inside of. So we we have a thread inside of the Discord going for a number of these short stories and short pours as people are reading them and talking about them. And one of the things that got brought up was Stephen King and Peter Straub's Black House, which is a story about a villain that is multiversal inside of the Stephen King universe. I don't want you to read anything about it, but I want to let you know at the very least that that story is postdated by this. Stephen King wrote a blurb for this fucking book that's on some of the covers like the dude loved this story and undoubtedly pulled some of that into his bones it's not like King was the first or that obviously Clyde Barker was the first person to write a scary house Stephen King has one in the dark tower for a brief segment of time but those were written close to the same dates if you look at them so I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't want to tell you, man. It's it's not a vampire house. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I I know no other story that's a vampire house. Do you know a vampire house? Are you aware? Sorry, I'm doing a Christiella bit, apparently. (laughs) Drunk girls. (laughs) Christiella bit. (laughs) An alligator took your job? (laughs) The alligator have pants? (laughs) They have pants on? 
Oh, good. <laughs> oh, God. Mm-hmm. I don't know a vampire house other than this one. Yeah. How many other depictions of this is a general question that I had for you in my head. There are many depictions of vampires. Is this one that you could have imagined? And is this where do you rank this among the ideas of vampires that you've seen depicted or read about or otherwise? I feel like this one comparatively is fairly loose in Mm -hmm. the sort of realm of vampires. It, It very much takes on more of a spiritual vampire and concept. Yeah. Conceptual vampire, as opposed to like, like vampires have a lot of forms that they take in fiction, but for the most part have a pretty standard outline. And this one is pretty wildly different. Even the vampire that Harvey gets turned into is much more like the sort of I am legend vampire as opposed to like most traditional forms. So you're talking the novella, the novel vampire from I am legend. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the, I know they don't really refer to them as vampires. Yeah. They're more like zombies in the movie, but they're more like vampires in the novel. Like they both, they operate in the same sort of realm. Yeah. I understand where you're going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I thought of like, how interesting would it be if what we do in the shadows this whole time, the house that they had living in was they had been living in was also a vampire. And like it was like a holiday house esque vampire. I just couldn't help but think of that idea in it being like a they're vampires who suck blood and they suck the life out of them because their lives suck <laughs> as, as a result of just living in that house. The house is also a vampire. This ancestral property is indeed a vampire. In Staten Island. <laughs> of course. Yes. How, how does Laszlo say, so say it? Damn much. It's, I, I recently watched the most recent season because I've been behind a whole season for a while Back, when I was sick. Like half a season. Hmm. I was back, so I was back season three and season four until I got sick, or like part of season three and then season four, because I'd watched some of it with my parents, but I finished, I watched all of season three again and then season four, and it was, it's so good, but that's also why it's like, if, if I can extract it, I can think about it and be like, well, they could be living in a vampire house because their lives suck constantly and like the whole thing is draining them. They're just always like, oh my God, I'm so pissed off about XYZ. And like, I don't know, it's a happiness vampire. It could work. Yeah. Theme. Yeah. It could work. Yeah. Final episode, the house starts talking like to the camera and it's like, this has been fun. (laughs) (laughs) I've had a great time. I'm Uh, doing very well. I'm doing, I'm doing very well. Cool. All right. Well, midway through the story, the story changes pretty dramatically. And we we find that there's been time lost as these the pair escape post figuring or being gifted. Sorry, it's on post. Let me let me back up here. So the Wendell and Harvey plan their escape and begin to run out of the fog to try to do so. And inside of the fog, Harvey is confronted by Lulu, of whom has a gift to bring. We don't know that it's Lulu, of course, at the time, but we there's a strange fish-like creature that gives him a couple of 
toys from his ark that was recreated by the house that was a present originally from his father that meant a lot to him, but he'd broken and lost on, on a pond or a lake previously. And so he's gifted these wet toys from from her in those moments. And I got to say, A, drawing of the fish lives with me for fucking ever, has lived with me <laughs> for always. It's always been horrifying. You want to talk about like that is back in the 90s, a depiction of Golem as he appears in the old backish Lord of the Rings cartoons. It's just a different monster yeah. with fins. Yep. God, those. That it's salamander same golem. Yep. Same guy. Same guy. Same but dude. in a like, <laughs> same dude. But in a like. That's what? The 1970s pod. Lord of the Rings TV show? I want to say it's like 74 or 75. Yeah. Yeah. Or The Hobbit? Was it The Hobbit? I don't know. So it was The Hobbit first, and then, God, there were three different... There were two animated movies, three different studios had a hand in. One finished... So one did The Hobbit, and then someone did the fucking Return of the King (laughs) to round out the story that wasn't there to just show the end. (laughs) Some of the beginning? I don't know. That's (laughs) so weird. That... Sorry. I don't even think that's correct. I think they did do a Lord of the Rings, which was meant to cover the fellowship and they just skipped the two towers. I God, I got to look this up again. There's so much there in the history of that. Bakshi, I said backish. Sorry. It was directed by Ralph Bakshi, though. The film company was called Backish messed up. Yeah, the Lord of the Rings. And then someone later went and made the return of the king. And there was also the Hobbit movie before that. So you've got the Hobbit. And then some years, and then the Lord of the Rings, and then some years, and then a different company does Return of the King. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking weird. So fucking weird. Stanley Kubrick turned down the opportunity to direct the Lord of the Rings <laughs> and instead did the shining. <laughs> he's like, he he looked at he looked at the script and he's like, I can't fucking do that. No one can fucking do that. <laughs> and like that was that was his basis for turning the whole thing down. Um uh, you know, he probably made the right call. Truly. Not wrong. Yeah. At the time. I mean, yeah. He didn't immediately he, do The Shining it, for the record. He did some other shit in between. But I wonder Shining what a Kubrick written. Lord of the Rings would look like. Though. Intense corridor shots. Yeah. It would be a lot of like, we'd get a lot of Minas Tirith, get a lot of shadows, we'd get some like crazy okay orc fight scenes. We've got, okay. we'd get some like, we'd get, I mean like, but we'd get none of the big, sh- actually that's not true. He did Spartacus. Spartacus is pretty big. <laughs> he could have done it. <laughs> he probably could have. You're right. Ne- never mind. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> but we get, so midway through the book, we also, we, we get the scene with the, with the fish. We get the handoff. It's so cool. And then they finally leave. And when they arrive back, we find them 31 years later confronting their parents wendell off in his own direction inside of the same town no less so there's been like some missing kids in this fucking town not that rick just couldn't have flown kids. kids in from other towns and one missing kid over the time that he's grabbing them isn't maybe so crazy but still it's a little bit it's a little too consistent for you know for some steamy-eyed reporter to not be like there's a fucking time murderer here but Steamy-eyed? I said ste- that's Steamy-eyed. not right. Steamy-eyed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
That's what I said. <laughs> I, mean, I know like it's what correct, said. But it did happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of missing kids. Seemingly like basically one every year or so. I don't know if it's one every year. Uh, no, Do you think it's one not. every year? No. Lulu is like much older. Like 20 or 30. Excuse me. She's like married at, at the point in which we meet her in the end. So yeah, I'm confused. She was like, about I, 10. I've got to talk to you about that when we get yeah. there. But Sure. Yeah, she's she very clearly says like she was taken before Harvey would have been born. So. Yeah, I think Harvey does the math, and that's why that comes out. But because the like husband is there. She's a young bride. I feel like she could have been maybe like Yeah, it's so okay. Older. She could have been like twenty two or twenty three like maybe yeah. maybe low twenties, but it, she's still an adult when Harvey's a kid. Right. So Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But even a decade, if we consider that there are only three kids at the holiday house, maybe it's five years. Maybe it's every five years he needs a kid, basically. So, and Rictus is smart enough to disrupt the pattern. You know, he's going to wield his wide grin and yeah, pull in whomever he can when he can. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a knowing car salesman who drifts into windows. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a good I don't know. But so Harvey Swick arrives back at home and meets his parents and they're 30 years older. Right. So this is kind of the flip of the story where we really realize and it's it's directly given to us that this is a year in the life that he's losing for every day he's spending. And as such, he's missing all his time. and His parents are old and he's freaked out by that. At the same time, they don't believe that he's him because they're like, you've been missing forever. How could you be you? That doesn't make any sense. You look like a fucking kid. You're wearing the same clothes. Dad's like, I don't know, this fucking guy. Put him in the trash can. Mom's like, no, no, no. <laughs> he's real. <laughs> he's a real boy. He should be 40 years old. Right. Yeah. 41 years old. Yeah, that'd be hard to deal with. And that 30 years of grieving and then to be confronted with that is also its own problem. Yeah, this all of the interactions with the parents are something that I feel like. Just by the nature of the type of story that's being told, the fact that it's a children's book, the, the fact that it's so short. Like, I wish there was more there. But I understand that hmm. there really can't be like like just more rationalization, more emotion, more conversation with them, more convincing them of what he's saying is true. And there's just a lot that gets glossed over out of necessity. And I think it's the right move. But looking at it in the lens of like somebody reading adult fiction, comparatively, it, it feels like there's a lot of holes in that in that sort of subplot yeah i i can i can understand that for sure i feel like you've you've given all the context of the reasons that i think that i would have qualms with it to some degree right like it's nature of the story to not focus on the time the parents too much and the paradoxes there and maybe the problems that may have arisen and their lack of belief so much as it is to service Harvey realizing that maybe he can reclaim that time, right? The intent is for him to go back, for him to realize that he lost all this time and then to reclaim it. But this is where 
for me, I think the most tangible theme as an adult comes in. This is where it's like that lost time you can never make up for. And so as such, you need to always be present as often as you can with those people that you want to be with. And you need to like make and take those actions when you can. I mean, sometimes you dive off and take the risk, but at the same time, if the risk doesn't work out, like reevaluate as, as often as you can. That's not what the story is saying, but that's my own like lesson, life lesson, taking this and then ingesting it and then outputting it on the other side of like, I took the risk. It failed. I'm going to spend time with the people I love because it failed. I'm going to take another risk. It might fail, but maybe it works. You know, you, the people you love are very important and it's easy to lose sight of that. And that's mm-hmm. what Harvey did in the moment. Right. Yeah. How do you make up for lost time? Book's answer is go defeat an evil house and reclaim your lost time. <laughs> and just don't the real have answer lost is, time anymore. You fucking can't. <laughs> yeah. But. I, I think so. One of our listeners, one of our patrons brought up a really interesting point. So I, I want to actually give the essay, so to speak, the time of day here. So give me just a second. I feel I like it would have been really interesting it. while you're pulling this up just to yep. kind of outline this. Instead of him like going back in time, if he he and all of the other children came out in in real time. And there was like a an orphanage set up for those that were there long enough that their parents are long gone. It's like something like that could have been an interesting way to resolve this, but I don't know. I kind of like I, I like both ways. Wait, of it. one more time. What was the last bit? It just feels like the message. The message I feel like would have been stronger if they didn't just get to turn back time and go back to their like initial date of getting to the holiday house so that gets to this essay's point yeah okay yeah i I just want to make sure that i understood what you were what you were saying so i'm gonna read this in its entirety and again it's from ziva wind punter here one of my first impressions after finishing the book was that i was a bit disappointed that harvey was able to reverse all the damage inflicted by mr hood i thought after all that he still gets to go back in time transform the fish back into children reverse their lives etc Then it seemed like he didn't face enough consequences for his choices and his actions. But then I thought about it more and realized, I don't think this is a fable about punishment. Like, you did the wrong thing, here's your consequence, and now you have to deal with the outcome. It's more hopeful and redemptive than that. It's you made a mistake, you understood the consequences, and now here's your chance to make better choices. And I think that's why this story is so timeless. Because as kids, we are naturally more elastic, we're resilient, we can bounce back more easily after making mistakes. Reading The Thief of Always as adults puts us back into that resilient mindset and doesn't leave us with just the feelings of guilt and hopelessness as those mistakes and their consequences may leave us. I think brilliantly put. Yeah, that's very well put. As literally a counterpoint to what you're saying. Totally, totally, totally. Because that is one of those things where it's very easy to read it in that context and be like, well, that's not it. But it's just that that's not the, the theme in the moment of this particular fable and of the story that's not what it's going for it's not going for that consequence it's going for the sort of way that you you need to realize that you can make up time and that you you shouldn't be you got to take advantage of it you can't lose the time that you have with the folks that you love right but yeah like the the whole the whole note there it's it is a part of the theme and metaphor but i feel like that's also he also addresses it 
cleverly enough to be like, just so you know, that's not what I was trying to teach here instead of the story. That is a lesson that you could try to take from this, but it's not what I'm trying to give mm-hmm. as the core. That's fair. Speaking of sort of lessons, Lulu at the end as this young bride having her new husband come up and talk to Harvey as opposed to approaching him herself. I didn't understand the significance of that decision. Do you? I think that's a, that's a really tough one to parse. I think it's being unwilling to face the reality of what happened. I feel like that's a trauma response. If that makes sense. I, I feel like that's a, a like, I can acknowledge this, but I can't confront it directly. And so she understands that she's lived for at this point, we're assuming based on our guesses a decade after the fact. And so she is unwilling to grapple with that. And so she sends her husband of whom is very loving and understanding very clearly to communicate the importance there. And that also convinces the father that this happened to begin with. I'm only the slightest bit bummed that Wendell doesn't show up in that final scene in some way, shape, or form. But it is nice to know yeah. that who does. Or as, like, they very specifically have that first time they go back, like 31 years later, there's no attempt to talk to Wendell and, like, corroborate his story, which they seem to have set up as an option, but then just didn't use yeah, the the story gives it this opportunity, but but at the same time, anything that happens in that future is like unduly gone when we go back to the house and confront the demon, right? That's a good point. So, and even like the path home, like his walk home is lost to sort of a fuzzy memory. Mm-hmm. But, right, he doesn't remember the direction even as he walks away from the house and then trying to find his way back with his parents in, in post. And then eventually, because he remembers in the end, when he makes his way back in the final chapter, he like knows where to go and it's a hill. It's grown into a field where children actually play and where no vampire could be found. So despite digging in the dirt, trying to find proof. All right, before we get to that end, I think we do need to at the very least talk about the kind of final confrontations of sort. This includes the dismantling of the various vampire assistants, Jive, of whom is like believes in his own lies, needs the food. He's trying to convince Harvey uh, Harvey to eat in those moments, which is a fascinating turn for him as he's like, eat the eat the fucking food, eat the eat the food, dude. You can eat it, I'll eat it. And (laughs) the whole time Rictus is like, what? No, <laughs> fuck are you doing? <laughs> Big eyes, like you're making. No, like, no, 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 no. Come on, dude. What'd you What'd you make of the demises of each of these people? I mean, they're they're deeply ironic and like yeah, they're the antithesis, right? Classic yeah. fable. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Like totally, totally in line with what I would have expected their demises to be like. Let it be known that Jive, of whom is the epitome of hype was killed by his own hype, which should emphasize that no hype is the best idea. Team Hyping things up too much. Not worth it. Not worth it. And then Uh, Mar becoming nothing. Yeah. Realizing that she didn't know what she was dream. Like she could shape things and change things physically, but she didn't actually know what she wanted herself. So she's the most 
almost metaphysical or like metaphorical distantly of them all much more you know intangible versus the rest of them mm-hmm. so she has this like concept of like i can change anything but i don't know what i want to change myself into despite being strange and weird and like i have tentacles almost for fingers and their length and their strangeness oh talking about inspirations Coraline is is this is cited as an inspiration for Coraline by Guyman as well. So that makes sense. Yep. That was that was the other one I thought about or that I knew of. So from the cheap seats, if anyone's read that. But yeah, the one just going back to the sort of quattro. The quartet of actors, I guess. Rictus is the one that's kind of. Rictus felt like the Atlas fight almost in Bioshock somehow. I don't know why that that like imagery is in my mind, but not quite what was presented. There's also Karna, right? Like Karna mm-hmm. is treated to kindness as opposed to being this embodiment of violence. And so shifts in that moment where Karna is treated like a pet and a dog and given love. And it almost makes me sad when Karna passes, but you have to also like interpret the fact that like Karna has terrorized several thousand children and has been a haunt upon the land and is generally a problem. (laughs) But, but is that a sentient decision? Is that, is that a, like, no, thankfully they're not actually like a humanoid. They're ash. They're all ash, but Mm -hmm it does still like give that longing of wishing that they could have had that other life. The only one of whom deserves that end that they eventually like that has a questionable end of sorts is Griffin, Miss Griffin of whom is complicit and complacent in a lot of the choices that were made over decades in the holiday house out of total self-preservation and right. Which is a binding. Yes, It, it is. It is forgivable, but it is also understanding why she has a different release than everyone else does, mm-hmm. which is just a finality because my God, could you imagine like reliving the existence since you were abducted from a kid and you've literally killed hundreds of kids over the course of centuries? No, I, I couldn't. That's, that's actually a fate worse than death. I think. Yeah. That's super fucked. Yeah. Yeah. And then to, to be just maybe a kind of coffin alive. One assumes, one hopes that the way this time warp unwindy thing works is they all get to walk out in their different realities and time frames. So it's not quite that bad, but yeah. So we we did Griffin, we did Jive, we did Mar, we did kind of touched on Rictus. Rictus really feeds into Hood, though. So so we did Karna. the final. Yeah, we did Karna. The final big reveal of the book, right, is the reveal of Hood. And where these children's souls go and this reveal of the monster behind the curtain. I gotta, I gotta fucking find this quote real quick. It's in chapter 21. The description of hood is just miraculous. I love it. Sorry, it's in chapter 20. I think the thieves meet 167. I love that he's called the Vampire King as well. Like he, this this man that is almost otherworldly, and the way that he's referred to as a vampire is 
intentionally and and perhaps meant to be evocative of a fable reductive of of the process of being a vampire right like it's he he is a vampire and the way that barker draws the equivalence is blood equals life and so taking away people's lives and their time equals blood and so that's the way that he's a vampire yeah okay here we are so the description of hood of the hood house his face was spread over the entire roof his features horribly distorted his eyes were dark pits gouged into the timbers his nose was flared and flattened grotesquely like the nose of an enormous bat his mouth was a lipless slit that was surely 10 feet wide from which issued a voice that was like the creaking of doors and the howling of chimneys and the rattling of windows Child, you've brought pain into my paradise. Shame on you. And there's just so much there that is wonderful. Shuddering, Harvey shuddering into his marrow. No time to show his fear. God, the again, we I've tried to avoid like re-sinking into how beautiful the prose is, but it is it is tough to avoid how brilliantly composed this whole thing is without going purple that's the other side of this is like this is it's always conveying action there's no wasted moment while still being evocative in everything that it does Mm -hmm. but that description of hood and the hood house and the eyes and windows and the teeth lipless and like seething out 10 feet on either side like a porch bending and creaking oh shaking into his marrow is not a description I would have expected, but from the fables, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. from from a kid's book, <laughs> yeah, and the way that that like really just oh god, it, it grabs you and it grips you and it never lets go. And from that point onward, from from the thieves revealed onward, this book is a contest between the two. And so suddenly we realize that Hood has been this sort of magnanimous benefactor of whom is sat over top of this whole scene being like, oh yeah, so I'll give you whatever you want. And we never really see him and he's just distant. And we come to realize that the whole thing is his, it's his own glamor as Thomas had made mention of with the Faye. This is his scene. This is his bit. And now that we come to realize that it is, he wields his face and he is the house. He is the whole being. He's the seasons. He's everything. Yeah. He is always. He is always, but just in his little pocket dimension. Just in his pocket dimension. Yeah, his little, his little, his little D and D pocket dimension. He's just sitting in a bag of holding somewhere that's like on a street open with some fog coming out of it, like a Dark Souls portal or an Elden Ring portal, any mm-hmm. from software portal, really. Basically, a boss dimension if you really want to think about it. But what do you make of the confrontation with Hood? What do you what do you think of Hood in this reveal in the moment? I mean, he is so such a large personality to grapple with. Like it is just a a daunting task to even confront him, let alone actually fight him. Yeah. It, it's it's wild how intimidating this person is. This entity is. I don't know. Just with with such little like such few paragraphs. I got a great idea of like how scared I should be of this guy. <laughs> how how terrifying this this creature 
his being is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's tough to think otherwise. It's it's tough to dance around and it gives you a very otherworldly sort of sort. And it's so it's so unfortunate at this point, right? Like when I read this, I know I know visual image, but I feel like a lot of people could read this and right and their experiences would be like, "Oh, crazy house shape, crazy mouth face, crazy like eyes." And you're like, "Oh, monster house." Like we made the meme about earlier, like, "Oh, it's monster house." And it's like this is scarier than that. This is deeper than that. This is a this isn't just like a house that has a tongue and like I it can like pull you into the furniture. This is a fucking soul sucking void creating mm-hmm. other dimensional being. And I think that really solidifies as the house gets demolished and Hood starts sort of manifesting himself out of rubble, essentially. Yeah, the timbers and, and everything else. He he does re-manifest himself as like the personification of the house built out of the wood and broken glass and all these other, you know, different mm-hmm. beautiful renditions. God, it's crazy. I love this book so much. So we obviously approach this final confrontation between the two. And as that confrontation goes, it's it, it's a pretty... At this point, it's it's sort of like the genie with unlimited wishes. Where do you wind his bandwidth down? Right, like it's playing for your mana pool. It's playing out the guy's hand because he sees the end. And we get this confrontation between the two as well, which resolves in the in the quote of like, "We're both thieves. We're both thieves of always. You in the way that you've killed my people, and you kill people, and you've stolen their future, and me in the way that I take people's lives to feel myself forever." And there's this sort of grandiose confrontation between the two upon this stage. And Hood believes that he can turn Harvey into an apprentice and help him and be better than Rictus ever could potentially have been inside of that spot to join him as a vampire underneath the vampire king. Legitimately. Like, I I think that there's no part of Hood that believes that he's going to manipulate this kid into just taking his soul immediately. There's a there's a lens of not just desperation, but of like Sith, the rule of two. Like yeah. we can do this together better than I ever could have. Like do you Miss think Griffin, it's a little bit of desperation as well. There's, I would say, there's a smidge of desperation. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not any element, but I do think that like it's, it is driven by seeing how clever he is because at the beginning it's intimidation. It's when he beats Karna that it changes and that it shifts into when when he changes Karna, that's when it shifts into something else like, oh, you're cleverer than even I imagined as you've beaten just about everyone of my assistants. So like, let's turn you into the next Mrs. Griffin, but maybe more dramatically. Let's make you a fixture. Let's turn you into, you know, a glamour of sorts for the house. Right. You would have done a good job. He would have done could a great been, job. Could have been a good living. Harvey Swick, the great glamour of February, gave Valentine's Day his best <laughs> thrust every year. I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> not, not, it was, it was not, oh, my God. It, again, fable was not meant to be sexual. Could see how that could be sexual. So, yeah. Could, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, I don't know how to transition out of that. There there are so many wonderful quotes that happen throughout this book. I mean, there are 
a couple that I want to mention before we get to the conclusion and talk ourselves through that and end the episode and, and like summarize our thoughts. But I believe Jive says at some point, some would say this world is filled with bloodsuckers that we all serve till the end. And he says it enthusiastically almost because that's who he is, right? He's the jumping Jive of joy. And man, isn't that a wonderful critique of capitalism and labor and working underneath yeah. someone? <laughs> like, we all serve bloodsuckers. <laughs> it's pretty true. Yeah, yeah. Gets gets that material true. aspect that's underlying. It's it's kind of great. Kind of great. Another one that happens from Miss Griffin's perspective, I believe she says this in chapter. 11 or 12 or 13 somewhere in that range take what joy you can from being here use the hour as well because there will be fewer than you think in this sort of early allusion to the the trick and the majesty but at the same time is a wonderful allusion to the idea of like just being on earth you only have so much time and at some point you may be faced or struck with something that you cannot control yeah i think i'm i'm guessing also in a more literal sense, the kids turn to fish pretty quickly. Right. That's that's the like, literal. Like, yes, that is the literal exchange. It's like you only have so much time. But like all three aspects of it, the like time's actually moving ten times or three hundred times as fast as it is here. And the sort of what would you call it? The meaningful answer of in general, we don't have as much time as we want are both like perfect answers to that sort of breakdown. Perfect breakdowns yeah. to that quote. You know, I, I think that like, as the story goes, the thief of all ways is, is really reiterating to me that time is the ultimate thief and the ultimate vampire. That's all they can take from us. Time is this vampire on all of us and it sucks it away and it never returns anything to us unless we choose to stake a claim to our time and how we spend it and that's what this quote gives to me and this this entire story to some degree is like you have to proactively choose the people that you spend your time in your life with you have to proactively choose the things that you do these things with because otherwise it's so easy to be distracted by the glamours of everything else that happens in life by the holidays and the seasonality of everything else Choose something perpetual. Choose something you love. Stake your claim in something genuine. Otherwise, the vampire will get you. Stake yeah. your claim. Stake your claim. Holy that. water that your was, claim. That was, that was an intentional pun. Garlic your claim. Garlic your fucking claim. Holy water, that shit. Spray it from your fingertips. You know. <laughs> but I do. I, I, I think that that's like the core... To me, that's one of the core points that I've taken away from this book. There's so many. A couple more quotes. Evil, however powerful it seemed, could be undone by its own appetite. Is an early quote that happens. I, I think around chapter 14 when they leave and and come to realize this. It's not about like how they undo the house, but eventually that is how the house is undone. And how everyone is undone in some ways is by their own means, as most fables do. It's like your the all I need to do is be the appy app of my god apotheosis of what this is to like get you to trigger and freak out and go the other way. So a wonderful Ooh, so quote. Good. So good. 
So good. Ultimately, we see the the beating of the hood house as Harvey wishes for all of these different things, including the first thing that he wishes for is another copy of that arc. Then everything else that he wishes for over time, this cornucopia of food, the infinite presence, the various pets and everything else pile up beneath it to raise it up on this like lobster post. And at the very top of this pile of wishes, you have that arc, the sort of saving grace in in some ways in the representation, the very vague representation of Christianity inside of this entire story of, of grace and its saving nature and in the way that that represents something inside of your own life. And for him, the thing that he latched onto was that boat and how important it was. So he let that be the first wish that he always hung on to as his mem- remembrance of childhood. And in some ways... The Thief of Always is my arc for childhood and remembering what that meant to me in those moments. I can always go back to it and get these little flashes of laying in my bunk bed, my blanket pulled up and my little fucking weird light that would always fall down on me, listening to mute math on my iPod and you know, just get so pulled back into these moments. while reading? No, only when I needed to finish a book and stay up at the same time because otherwise I'd fall asleep in it and I'd fall asleep with my light on. My dad would get mad at me. So the the trick was <laughs> I, I had to keep myself awake so that I could finish it and then shut off the light. And so as such, I would put music on only when I need to stay awake to keep reading something because I couldn't put it down. The There are only a couple of other books that fit that like style of desperation. Later in life, the Hunger Games books did similar things to me. And the what was the other one? Keys to the Kingdom by Garth Nix. And there's one other book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Those were like the four times that I can remember or four, five times that I can remember as a as a kid needing music to keep me awake to finish a book <laughs> or like yeah. pushing myself to stay awake because <clears throat> I wanted to finish the book, but my body wanted to shut down. So I gave myself other senses <laughs> to wake up to finish it. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Basically Metallica torturing myself to make it happen. Anyway, the end of this fucking book, right? The 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 final culmination of, of Hood and his original dissolution before we get to the final dissolution with Rictus. Mm-hmm. What'd you think of the way he breaks him down? I mean, I, I love the sort of physical breakdown. The let's run out all the processing power of the supercomputer. Mm-hmm. basically yeah. basically like it's so, so the mana fun. pool you know yeah yeah just trying to overload the wish capacity and use that as a means of making him break down just as much complicated things to be like manifested and rendered in in real time genius yeah it's it's very clever it's you know, like the thing is, it feels like a a way that you could always like go with a lot of these stories is like just overwhelm them with with things that they can't handle and continue to push them to the edge. But the the thing with me as I think about these stories is like it's about execution. And this one is just brilliant where it's Harvey Swick doing it one wish at a time and never seeming condescending about it and always being like. I know the next thing and I know the next thing and I know the next thing that I want to wish for. And you're just going to keep doing it because you wish for me to be your man. In order to do that, you can't. I can't be bought. I can't be purchased with any goods or things. I can only I can only be given what I want back, which is my life. 
Oh, so cool. So cool. So the house dissolves and breaks down and begins to suck into this void as the pond becomes one. The children are gradually freed and from it emerges. And Rictus finally kind of has this kind of like last laugh and pitches as he would as a salesman to Harvey. This idea of like, well, I could be your guy. You could be my guy. We could be guys together. Like, and he gives this <laughs> sort of like, we we could be like, as a fishing lure, like we could do it. And the house quickly grabs him and pulls him down and Hood emerges from it kind of with him and sucking his power, comes out as this kind of corpse of the building, glass eyes shattered, wooden timbers building out his shoulders as a sort of thin frame and gives kind of this final plea of life between the thieves of all ways, as it were. Kind of a haunting image to end the story on, but at the same time, a great scene for a hero to walk away from being like, you can't give me anything. Yeah, man. What a strong, strong way to end that confrontation. <laughs> yeah. Harvey Swick. Harvey Swick. Harvey so, Swick. Our boy makes her way. He frees all the people. They all return to their own times. He has a brief conversation with Lulu, and Lulu has, as you mentioned earlier, a moment where she's like, I wish that we could live our lives together, but at the same time, I know that when I return, like selfishly, she's like, I wish we could live our lives together, but I know that's not possible because I also need to return to my own family in time. And as such, that eventually leads to our final confrontation that happens in the park after Harvey's parents don't believe him in the moment and they go to the park to try to dig it up. Confrontation with the husband and the kite and sort of the the end of this in the field where the hood house had previously lived with its repeating seasons. What do you make of the end? What do you think of the end? Overall, I think I like it. I wish there was like one guy who had been like one, one like third party journalist who had been compiling all these like stories of disappearances who still remembers all these kids being gone. And like, suddenly all of these disappearances never happened. So he's just this crazy guy who's like, no, there's kids that are disappearing all over the place. Like, like Harvey Swick and Harvey never disappeared. I think that could have been really funny. Well, so, so here's the reason that doesn't work, right? Like I love that idea. The reason that is so tough to convey is that none of this actually ever happened, right? With Harvey winning in the end, he undoes all the damage and the kids get to return to their families after being missing for what's effectively apparently a day in, in mm-hmm. Harvey's life. Not very long at the very least. And so like yeah. there's not there was a mystery to track in some other timeline, if that makes sense. So like it would have been cool in the 31 year timeline right. to run into a reporter. But in no other timeline would that reporter ever exist because of the time loop. So the time loops a problem with that. I just think it could have been, but I love the idea. I was just, I was just trying to say Um, it it fits in earlier better with what you were saying before. Yeah. I am curious just about the internal sort of logic of this time traveling that the, all the children seem to remember everything that happened, but they get to go back and and relive their lives with that hindsight. Faye glamor. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. It's, it's totally a magic-y hand wave in some ways, you know? Like most fables are. Yeah. It's meant it's meant to be more than it's just meant to be a thing. So mm-hmm. I like the hill. I like I said, I wish there was a little bit more if this was written for adults, there would have been a more scrutinous conversation that would be would have been had with the parents as far as convincing them to like believe him goes. 
but it's not. <laughs> so it's fine. And I like all in all, I really like the way that this story ends. I like the, everything about this story. Yeah. The the final exchange, I, I want to pull pull in your thoughts a little bit here. So they're they're talking about this moment, right? And the parents are exchanging this between the two of them and they're they're chatting about this reality after being confronted by the man of whom has also his wife, Lulu, has had this experience at the holiday house and recognizes Harvey and and such as we understand. So the the man says, What could be better between us than this healing earth? And they they shake hands, which, you know, Harvey's hands is full of dirt because he's been digging in the ground. And as such, his parents end up coming around to believing him, and they have this exchange in which Harvey pours the dirt from his hand into his father's hand. What'd you what'd you think of that in the moment? Do you want me to I have it right here? Do you want me to read it? Do you need Yeah, go for it? I, I okay. remember like pausing on it, but don't have a specific like, oh, this was pulled from this kind of deal. Sure, yeah. So I'll read the whole thing. What could be better between us, the man replied with a smile, than this healing earth? He took Harvey's hand and shook it, and with a nod to Harvey's mom and dad, hurried back down the slope. Harvey watched as he spoke to the woman in the white dress, saw her nod, saw her smile in his direction. Then they were both gone, out into the street and away. Well said Harvey's dad. It seems your Mr. Hood existed after all. So you believe me? Harvey asked. Something happened here, and you were a hero. I believe that. Then that's enough, said Harvey's mom. You don't have to keep digging, sweetie. Whatever's under there should stay buried. Harvey was about to empty his left hand of dirt when his dad said, let me have that, and opened his hand. Really? said Harvey. I've heard a little... I've heard a little good magic's always useful, came his father's reply. Isn't that right? Harvey smiled and poured a fistful of earth into his father's palm. Always, he said. Okay. So something about keeping the past buried or like burying secrets or whatever that... I don't know. There's a passing on of the magic in some way, right? I I genuinely like don't have a good answer here, which is why I'm asking. Um... I mean, it seems more like a let me help you carry this burden of something that hmm. nobody is going to believe you. Yeah, um, that's a good call. Right. I don't know. It's a there, physical I'm sure acknowledgement there's a lot of, of ways that. that this could go. Yeah, yeah. I, I've just never had a good read on it myself, so I appreciate that. I think you're right. All right. Wow. With that, we're not quite done. I do want to read the last paragraph of the story, and then we can wrap up with some general thoughts afterwards. But similar to the first paragraph, this end is brilliant. I mean, bookended incredibly by these by these two quotes. So, time would be precious from now on. It would tick by, of course, as it always had. But Harvey was determined he wouldn't waste it with sighs and complaints. He'd fill every moment with the seasons he'd found in his heart. Hopes like birds on a spring branch, happiness like a warm summer sun, magic like the rising mists of autumn, and best of all, love. Love enough for a thousand Christmases. So like three years of Christmases. Fucking asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, like, all right, love enough for a thousand Christmases is like three people's Christmases divided by... 
Yep. I mean, if you think about life expectancy, like no one's getting to a thousand Christmases. So like you got to got divide it out. You got to have some kids. You got to like bring them in. You got to make them happy. You got to make sure the kids are happy. You got to like you got to facilitate some shit to make a thousand Christmases worth it. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mathematically. <laughs> Fucking asshole. Love you. Yeah, I I love the end of this book. I mean, it's it's tough to. I also didn't read the bit about the hood house and the history buried there, but that entire like last segment is is just brilliantly written as as a means to communicate that this story is above all things about always. It's about time. It's about the impact that we have on other people. It's about the good days and the bad days and being willing to tolerate them to get to the core of why we live life. It's not just for the high notes. It's for the low notes. It's for living with the people that we choose to, mm-hmm. especially when their name is not Wendell. Yeah. Fuck Wendell. Fuck Wendell specifically. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Final, final thoughts. I mean, what's your, uh, did we not tackle a, anything? Did we hit such yeah, I mean, a like, beautiful story? It's such a good story. I really like, I'm upset that I haven't read it before now. I'm well, yeah, definitely going to live in my, brain for a while i'm i'm glad i am ecstatic because at the same time like there's been so much of me that isn't i have genuinely never gotten to like talk with anyone outside of my dad about the story and the first time i did i was 12 and the second time that i confronted him about it was when i was like that's my favorite book and he was like oh i think i have a copy and then couldn't find it to like give it to me at one point i was like all right well that's fine and he like barely remembered it and that's such an interesting dis like he remembers the high notes but like by comparison again that impact like youth and age and when it hits you yeah right it's like it's so wild that i i recall that conversation in the honda civic in the front seat with lucky boys confusion playing on the radio so we talk about the fishing lure with you know like it's it there's just all these things that just blend into that moment that are unmistakable and they're only a couple of those. And that's also what the story is about, which is why it's so important to remember yeah. is the story is about those moments and like enjoying the mundaneity, but then remembering the other parts of life that you get to live. Ugh. Mm. It's it's cyclical in and of itself, in addition to being a story about cycles. For sure. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so good. It's so good. The art's really cool. The fish is fucked up. Fish the house is, is kind of fucked up. The whole for those of you who haven't seen the whole front cover of the first editions. It is a contiguous painting of all of the different characters across the seasons, which is perhaps the coolest part. I'm sh- I think I sent this to you earlier, but it goes. Oh, really? So it goes across the seasons as you That's move. So cool. So the whole thing is built around this idea of of it being front to back about the seasons. Yeah, it's lovely. My dad does have a first edition. He just no longer has the. Uh, he bought another one, but yeah. This was a gift that Deb finally tracked down for me two birthdays ago. So my first edition copy was a gift from Deb because she knew that it was my favorite book. And she bought me a nice copy because she knew it was my favorite. I had long set out for maybe as long, ever since I moved out, I've had this quest of like buying as many of the first editions of books that I love at used bookstores so they've been loved before i pick them up because i'm gonna maybe read them one or two more times in in their lives but i want to keep them and i want them to be like used first editions 
And so Thief of Always was always on my list. But no used bookstores have Clive Barker anywhere. <laughs> you can't fucking find him. So I had never bought it for myself, even though it was readily available. And Deb, one year for my birthday, ordered it for me off eBay for like 60 bucks or something like that. So not that it's not readily available, but I just always had this thing where it was, you know, it was an object that I wanted to get as like a quest fetch thing. So mm-hmm. Well, that's nice. Anyway, so that's my favorite book of all time, Impossible to Dethrone. There are better books out there. There are books that I technically like more, but there are none that have impacted me across my entire life as much as this story has. So it's like that Timing, in the stand. Nostalgia, so, impact, all of that. Is, yeah. I try to measure it all. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm. I try to. I try to be reasonable with this approach. Like, it's not the best book in the world. Like, I've read better books, but I, I can't. I can't quantify my life without this book. And so, it is my best book of all time. It's my favorite book of all time. Perfect. I would be a very different person without this story. I can I imagine. Yeah. Cool. Any, any. I can't imagine ending this episode any other way, unless you have anything else that you can think of. Yeah, that's good for me. Yeah. I literally wouldn't be here on the show if it weren't for this book. We can, I mean, I'm wearing a Dark Tower shirt right now, and I probably wouldn't be wearing the Dark Tower shirt if it weren't for Clyde Barker. So, uh, by extension, neither would I. <laughs> by extension, we wouldn't be here. As, as a note, for those of you who may have appreciated this book, there are a couple of others that I would recommend that are in similar ranges. If you liked The Thief of Always, my first recommendation for Clyde Barker before jumping into some of the, I know I made a point of the, the sort of horror on the top end, but he is not similar to Stephen King, just a horror author, obviously. Aberat is an entire book series that I believe there are three books of now that is in a similar vein, but middle grade fiction that is fantastical in length. Each book, I think, is about 700 pages long, and it's they're just brilliant, incredible stories that take place there. There's one more book that's going to be coming out to complete that cycle. There is also Mr. Begone, of which is my second favorite Clyde Barker book. It's impossible to tell you what it's about, but it is more adult than this by a long shot. Imagine this sort of fable concept but elevated immediately to adults. So take this, drive it up in age by two decades. Like for thir- it's it's a book, it's a fable intended for thirty year olds in its own way, in its craft and everything else. I highly recommend it. It's what again, it's it's in my top twenty five favorite books. This is number one. I found this book late in life, Mister Begun. I'm sure, it, uh, yeah, it's so good. And the other recommendation, if you liked this and you want to kind of stay in the style. I would say the House of Cerulean Sea is just for you. It's got a very similar vibe. It's a little bit more cozy and a little bit less severe in some ways than others. So the House of Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune. It's right in here. So, all right. We're looking for similar recommendations. That said, next month on this podcast, we are going to be talking about Castlevania Season 2. And if you have missed or have been missing our coverage on either the Greenbone Saga, or The Legend of Vox Machina in this very podcast. You can check both of those out. We'd be very excited for you to join us. So that's what we got going on at Words and Whiskey at the moment. Yeah. In general, you can always check out the show notes where you can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, websites, social media accounts, all combined into one very easy easy centralized location. Yeah, 
as PJ had mentioned, you can also track us down if you can't find them in the show notes. Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com if you want to send us an email or an opinion or a question on anything. Patreon.com forward slash Words and Whiskey if you'd like to support what we do across Atomic Pilot Media. We really appreciate all your support. It literally helps us fund our dreams at this point. Thank you, as always, for, for putting up with us and taking the time to listen with us. It, it really does mean the world to us. So I appreciate you. See you next month. Bye. Bye.